Welcome to the Church Leadership Podcast, your weekly source for encouraging and equipping local church leaders with your hosts, Mark Ganey and Andy Frazier. In each episode, Andy and Mark sit down with church leaders that you should know. We believe these honest conversations will be helpful and encouraging to you as you lead the local church. Here is this week's episode. Welcome to today's episode of the Church Leadership Podcast. I'm so excited, uh, really about every episode, but specifically today's episode and our conversation that we have today. And our mission is the same uh, at Church Leadership Podcast week in and week out, and it's to encourage and equip leaders in the local church to be disciples that make disciples. And uh, we believe today's conversation is going to help you do that. It's going to be encouraging um, in that in that regard. So before we get to the conversation, though, I do want to remind you, make sure you subscribe. And look, I know I say this every episode, but it's true. You only listen to the podcast that you subscribe to usually. So we don't want you to miss a single episode. Hit subscribe. Maybe it's your first time um, watching or listening. Uh, Maybe you're watching on YouTube or listening to your favorite podcast app. Well, look, go ahead and hit subscribe. If you absolutely hate this, then you can always unsubscribe later. So make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. We want you to be a part of every episode. So Andy, here's today's conversation. We are absolutely excited about our guests today. And I have my own personal reasons why I'm excited that we have a special guest with us today. We have Dr. David Ganey, which is a familiar name to many of you who listen and watch the podcast. Uh, David is Mark's brother. David is the founding pastor of Oasis. Uh, It's a church in Tucson, Arizona. It's uh, about to celebrate its 25th anniversary. And uh, David, we are excited about the conversation today. When we began our time talking Earlier, before we started recording, I asked David two questions. How do you want to be introduced? And can you tell me something embarrassing about Mark? So we're going to get to that second question before this episode is over with today. I'm afraid of David, we're so glad. So glad you can join us on the podcast this week. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So those of you watching on YouTube, um, you probably by now have already begun to notice the similarities and uh, mannerism uh, familiarity between uh, my brother and I, but he is, he's my older brother. And so he's my big brother. And, uh, it is true that uh, not everything, but almost everything in my life was, uh, was encouraged or inspired by my brother. And that's kind of us little brothers. That's what we do. So it is really a joy to, to have you on the podcast. And probably the reason we waited until, you know, this point to have you is because I am afraid of that second question that Andy mentioned, <laughs> but, um, but we'll get there anyway. But, but David, I'm so glad you're on the podcast and listen, so I've obviously followed your journey as your brother over these last 25 years. I remember, I remember the day that you moved to Tucson. And I remember the, the trauma that our family endured as you left Alabama to go to Tucson, Arizona, because you felt like God was calling you to that area. And so um, I, I've, I've watched from afar now, God use you as the founding pastor and, and how um, that church has made an impact in that community, that neighborhood, that area. But here's what I want, want to ask you. First of all, talk a little bit about specifically your calling to that area. Um, because to me, that story is fascinating, but also talk about maybe why you stayed, because a lot of church pa- church planters, as you were at one point, um, they, they plant a church, they're there for a little bit, and they leave. Right. They're starters, serial starters, but that's not God's call on your life, and that's not your heart. 
you, you've been there 25 years now. We talked about it before we hit record. You're not a church planner anymore. You're the founding pastor. You're the pastor. And so talk a little bit about your journey uh, in Oasis and how God has, has worked through Oasis. Yeah. Um, well, the first question was how I got out here. Um, you know, I had gone to um, Beast and Divinity School where you ended up in Birmingham, and I had met my wife in Birmingham, married her shortly after starting Beeson. And um, before I even got to grad school, I was already feeling like I wanted to start a church. There's something fresh about not inheriting somebody else's problems, but making your own mess. And somebody else has to inherit your problems, right? Like let the next guy be the guy that has to complain about that stuff. So I thought that would be neat, you know, to be the guy, you know, I don't inherit anybody else's mess. Everyone here wants to be here because of me. Like that's very attractive. And so uh, I really felt led to start a church while I was in college. And then when I got to grad school, as I thought about it and prayed about it, I realized um, that I had this passion to be a missionary. But I I can't, I have a hard time learning other languages, right? So I'm like, well, what kind of missionary can I be if I'm stuck with English? You know, I guess I could go to Australia, Great Britain, you know, I'm limited. And, uh, And then I really had a heart for being a missionary in my own country. So there was this thing in me that wanted to be a missionary, wanted to start a church in North America. Um, I remember in grad school, I ended up going to a Southern Baptist convention meeting in Orlando, Florida. That probably would date it. And uh, I went there and I, and, and, and I was almost done with grad school. I mean, I had like a year left. And so this was probably 1994-ish. And I remember being there and going up to a booth and the booth was by the North American mission board known by its previous name at the time. And it was, um, the, the, the booth was called planting churches in under churched parts of America. And I walked up to the booth and I said to the guy, the sign on your booth is what I want to do with the rest of my life. here." Mm. And he goes, really, do you have uh, any place in mind? I said, we're in it, Orlando. I want to be here. This is where the magic is. I want to be in Orlando, Florida. I mean, I'm close to the beach. Like this is, this is good stuff. And he said to me, oh, that's interesting. Cause we don't consider Orlando to be one of the underchurched parts of America, one of cities in America. And it's I'm like, your oh, dream. Really? <laughs> he's like, uh, well, well, that's not, it's not, under, this is not underchurched. And I'm like, it's not. He goes, no, no. In fact, there's only one city in the entire Southeast um, on our list. I said, what is that? He said, Miami. And I went, Miami. Of the Southeast. It's Cuba. Who would want to go to Miami? You know, that's why it's under church, right? So I heard that and I walked away and I thought, uh, Jesus, was Orlando my idea or your idea? And I laid that down. I remember laying that down that week going, you know what? I think Orlando might be my bright idea. And I'm willing to go wherever you tell me to go. And shortly after that, um, I did for the very first time in my life, which I've done maybe 20 times since then. I did Experiencing God by Henry Black. It was still pretty young, pretty new back then. And I went through, um, I went through that course around 1994, 95. And one of the things I learned from going through that was uh, that I should be asking God, where are you working? And if God shows me where he's at work, that's the invitation. Well, that's a really mind-blowing way to approach things. And so I, I went through the North American Mission Board's Church Planner Apprentice Program. I got um, approved. My wife and I got approved as missionaries. But they don't appoint you. They leave that up to you. You have to go find a, a, a church, sponsoring church or an association or something to kind of like officially endorse you and pay, you know, half your salary. And that was an 18-month long period. 
And we got calls from people in probably a third of the states in the United States. And uh, we talked to people in Nevada, uh, Minnesota, Ohio, um, Illinois. We talked to people all over the country. And uh, we even flew up to Boston twice. Um, we almost, almost moved to Boston. And I thought, honestly, that if the standard was, where's God at work, that would, that would be solved like in the first phone call. 18 months later, I still didn't have an answer to that question. Because whenever I would ask, why do you want to start a church there? I would always get an answer like, well, there are no churches there. And, you know, you, you said, why did I stay? My, my longing was to plant one church and stay at that one church the rest of my life. That was my goal from day one. I almost didn't do it. There are a couple of times I almost quit, but that was my goal. And so I would say to people, look, I want to move my, my wife and my kid and myself there and, and have the rest of my family there and raise my family there and maybe die there. You got to give me a better reason than that. And they never did hmm. until I talked to a guy in Tucson who said, well, we've got a church planner apprentice out here who has started a church. His goal is to abandon it quickly. And it's been going about six months and there's a group of people there and they're hungry. And I asked questions. He gave me good answers. We flew out here, saw a hungry group of people that wanted a church. And we knew before we got on the plane to come back, God was inviting us to Tucson. And on the plane on the way back, we agreed to quit our jobs, turn in our notices. And uh, we were here one month later, mm. permanently. And there were some hard times when uh, I wanted to just, uh, you know, cry and come home. But we didn't. We stayed. We stuck it out. Yeah, listen, as, as two uh, failed church planters, I'm kind of amazed. You said you almost quit twice. I'm out. I almost yeah. quit twice every hour, you know. Well, okay, <laughs> okay. When I say almost quit twice, I want to quit. You know, the average pastor wants to quit seven times a year. Uh, before I went to Potter's Wheel, which I'm sure we'll get to later, I remember thinking the average pastor thinks about quitting seven times a year. What kind of wusses are going into the pastor? <laughs> and then after I became emotionally healthy, because I wasn't emotionally healthy, I wasn't in touch with my feelings. Uh, after Potter's Hole One, I became aware of that. And as I began this journey of emotional health, you know, the Peter Scazzaro journey, which I went on later than him differently, but it was the same journey. When I started getting emotionally healthy, I remember thinking, just seven times a year? Man, I think about three, seven times a week. So when I say I almost quit, I don't mean I thought about it. I, I thought about it lots of times. I mean, I really seriously almost quit, like ready to just get in the car and come home. Uh, I think about quitting even now, but it, it's, that's not almost quitting because we yeah. suddenly realize we don't have any marketable skills and what else can we do and how can we feed our family and we're stuck with this church. You know? Yeah. Uh, Elijah under a broom tree. That's, that's how I consider yes. a lot of those Monday morning moments pastors have, you know, you just, yeah. am I the only one God, you know, do you care? Uh, we can have it's a just me against the prophets of Baal. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, David, your story is very interesting, not just in the fact that God moved you from Alabama to Tucson, but it's interesting the fact that you have this, this longevity of sticking with what you thought God wanted you to do. You said from day one, you wanted to be somewhere and stay there a long time. And uh, we've talked a lot about church planning here on the, the podcast. And most of the time, a church planner's story is they are uh, borderline nomadic. You know, they'll go somewhere, they'll stay, they'll right. start, they're, they're apostolic, you know, they, they go start something and they'll let somebody else come in and finish it. And you mentioned, yeah. you know, it's, it's attractive to come in and make your own mess and let somebody else come in and clean it up. So, which is what I've done. 
what what would you say to people who are watching and listening who maybe they're in the church planning world and maybe they're considering should I stay or, or should I look for something else or maybe they're about to enter into that world of church planning they're going through the process of being you know uh, poured into and equipped and and prepared to go on that journey how would you kind of challenge or or, or tell them something from your experience of going somewhere digging in you know, planting roots and just like Jeremiah 29, you know, building houses and planting gardens and, and, and making a family there and blessing uh, the, the area you in, how would you encourage and, and challenge people who may be there in that phase? Well, I'd start by talking about my not so noble motives in the beginning. Um, I, I read several books about uh, church growth stuff back in the uh, early nineties. And, um, I read one book about that. that it, it, it had in it, I think, the top 20 fastest growing churches in the United States. And even then it was dated. I mean, it's probably from the early 80s, honestly. And uh, Elmer Town, I think, had written the book. And I looked at the book. Every one of the characteristics, he was looking at characteristics of all the pastors. With the exception of one of those pastors, all of them had been at their church at least 20 years so I remember thinking at that time, there's something to longevity if the fastest growing churches are led by people who've been there 20 years. Uh, back then, I thought it was just a neato fact that I need to apply to get my mega church, right? Because I came out here to start, you know, Saddleback Part 2, you know, that's why I came out here. And I thought I'd have a mega church in five to seven years, and I'd be at 10,000 people by 10 years. You know, I had these fantasies. And what I would say is what I've since learned is the reason that those are the fastest growing, the fastest growing churches have that in common is because they're led by guys who have a story, like who have had to grow up. Because when you've been at a church for two decades, uh, you can't keep preaching your same stuff all the time. Um, they're tired of it, right? They've heard every one of your sermons. They've heard of all of your stories. They know every one of your illustrations and your jokes aren't funny anymore. So if you're going to stay at a church for 20 years, you got to grow up. You have to evolve. You have to change. You have to come more in touch with yourself. You have to have a passionate love relationship with Jesus. So what I've realized on this side is that the power of staying is that you can't do your little tricks and gimmicks anymore. You have to move on to something else. Uh, so many pastors rotate after five years. Why? Because uh, that's it. The church has got them. They figured them out. They got to move somewhere where people haven't figured them out yet. So I would say that my unnoble un motives coming out here was to kind of follow the principles of that book because I wanted to do everything in my power to, to get Oasis to grow and to be a mega church. And I went through a dark night of the soul about uh, five years into the venture, maybe six years in, where I realized I was not going to probably ever have a mega church and it might not even last. And the church looked like it was going to die. And at that point, uh, that was really the darkest time for me. And it was really the best time in the long run. When I look back and see what God did in my life, it was the, it was the hardest, but it was the best. Um, but yeah, I had to I had to accept the fact that I came here under the assumption that if I do things God's way, He's going to give me what I want. <laughs> and then I did things Jesus' way. I did do things Jesus' way. I did my way. Then I repented of that did things, started going to soul care, started like working on me. Then I stopped being the angry control freak guy that I had been. And I thought, well, now Jesus is going to give me what I want magically because I'm not manipulating everybody. And he did it. And uh, the church almost died. And it got worse after I repented. And then I got really angry with God and said, really, seriously, I'm going to do everything your way. And then you're going to let it die quicker. 
And then I had to walk into uh, Jesus never promised that he was going to give me what I want, even if I gave him what he wanted. Mm. He would just give me him. And so when I realized the only thing Jesus promised me is Jesus, and I started loving the people, I realized I liked him. And it was about six years into this, I started really enjoying the people. I was no longer like trying to manipulate them. And I just enjoyed them. And I fell in love with them. I'm like, wow, to be sad if this church dies, I really like these people. This is like my favorite church. And so, you know, we're still small. Um, You know, we were doing pretty good uh, about a year ago. I was looking at the numbers. Uh, I say pretty good for us. Like, consider this. We've been here almost 25 years. And twice we've averaged like in the 160s, which is really great for us out here. You know, we're out in the Wild West and uh, we're not a mega church, never have been. So we were averaging like in the 160s two years ago and it was like looking good. And then I did a series of things uh, in addition to what God did through COVID that if I was trying harder to sabotage Oasis, I don't know what I could have done. Like, I think I just sabotaged everything. So you know, we had, we, after 2020, it was, it was like, great. I, I was like, I hear these stories about people losing members and losing people and losing giving. And I'm like, wow, our giving's up. Our attendance is up. Like I'm ashamed to tell people. Well, 2021 hit. And let me tell you something. I uh, went down from two services to one service. Uh, we changed locations. I um, illegally fired my assistant pastor and then backed out of that five days later, but then underwent discipline and the church put me on discipline for a month. I mean, after being here 24 years, right, I go through discipline. And uh, it was rough. I I went to 25 plus hours of counseling, my wife and I, in August of last year. And we come out of this stuff and here we are. In-person attendance is in the 90s now, in-person. Now, nobody knows who's coming online, right? You all have devices and we're just factoring in times some number and we're guessing how many people we have online. But we're estimating that we're averaging like 130 something with online. It's painful. And so I'm constantly being reminded that I may have come out here to start a big church that would make me famous and feel self-important. But God's got me on a journey to do something else in my life and in their lives and uh, I keep being reminded of that right when I think, oh, I've learned that lesson. I figured that out. Now God's going to grow the church. He's like, no, no, remember, we already had that lesson. We, I don't, that doesn't happen. Like that chapter doesn't get here. And I'm like, but eventually, right? So no, I don't think that chapter's, I'm going to ever see that chapter. <laughs> but, but, you know, um, that story, your experience is, is so common. Um, I think for a lot of us pastors and church leaders, we never get to the point of admitting that yeah. um, we just leave and go somewhere else and think, well, those people suck. I've got to this find a better fast people. enough. I'll go someplace that will. Right. So I think just you sharing that story and being transparent is, is huge and such an encouragement. I want to ask you about something that's been a big part of, of what God has done and in your life and in the life of Oasis. And that is, you mentioned soul care. Potter's wheel is, is kind of your, uh, your method of soul care. So if you don't mind, just explain a little bit about what, what Potter's wheel is and how God has used that in your life and the life of the church. Okay. Yeah. So when I went through that dark night of the soul, um, you know, two things happened. I, I came to find out about the cell-based church. We can save that for another day. And the other thing that happened during that time is I, um, I went to Potter's wheel one. So uh, Potter's School 1, the summary of this is uh, there's some good people here in Tucson, John and Patty Seepin, they're mentors of mine. Uh, they're in their late 70s. 
And back when they were young, uh, they went out, uh, they were out, went out East and they ended up at Grace Theological Seminary, Indiana. And they sat under a young guy named uh, Dr. Larry Crabb and another guy named Dr. Dan Ollander, right? They were just getting started in the classroom and they were doing this whole new approach to um, counseling. And so uh, John was in a degree program, a master's degree program, and Patty was invited because she was a spouse. She wasn't even getting a degree. She just sat in on the classes because she was allowed to. So they just took in all this stuff from Ollander and Crabb. And then eventually they ended up as biblical counselors, made their way out west to Tucson and um, started a, a lifetime of biblical counseling. And what they would do is they would take the two semesters of material they got from the main class that Crab taught. They would take those two semesters and they would like offer it one night a week to a close intimate group of people and they would like pass it on. Well, then eventually some missionaries came to Patty and this one female uh, missionary said to Patty, would you come here and help the missionaries here by doing that stuff you do throughout the year? Could you do that like in one week? She said, I can't do that in one week. That takes a year. And she's like, I know we don't have a year. Could you just give us something in a week that, that these, these missionaries are falling apart? They need help. So she said, well, I'll see what I can do. And so she took the 20 hours of one semester and decided to do it in the mornings for five days. And then she took the lab, the 20 hours of lab from that semester and decided to put that in the afternoons. So she said, well, I could do five days, eight hours a day, 40 hours, and I could get you the main gist. I don't know what it's going to look like and feel like, though. And it was life. It was transforming. Right. It was life changing for these missionaries. She came home and she said to John, I think we have something here. I think doing this in five days so that people can't like, you know, don't miss 20% of it, like doing it in five days in this intensive setting, I think did, did more than we usually see over a course of, of a semester. Well, she did one semester, right? So then Potter's World 2 would be the same thing, but it was the second semester, right? So two, five days. Well, I went through this uh, for the first time around 2003, I think, 2004, somewhere in there. And uh, I was going through a dark night of the soul and I was having a hard time. I, my church was dying. I was sort of angry and I wasn't even in touch with my anger at that point. And I went through this five day intensive that was actually designed to be part one of a two part thing to help you learn how to offer soul care to others. So Potter's Will One focuses on you. It focuses on the log in your eye. So the idea of Potter's Will One is if we can recognize our story, how it's impacted us, why we do the things that we do, how that's related to our story, how what we did to survive as a kid is what we're doing to survive now, but also destroying all of our relationships. If we can begin to understand why we do what we do and we can start um, really healing in some cases, but definitely repenting, that's the key, repenting. If we can begin to actively change the way we think and live, uh, then we can be healthy enough to help somebody else take the speck out of their eye. So Potter's Will 2 is, uh, builds on Potter's Will 1, but the idea is more taking, this, I, taking these concepts and learning to use them with other people to help other people, because I can't help you unless I'm working on me. So I went through Potter's Will 1 and then Potter's Will 2 six months later, because it takes a while for you to really gradually you know, swallow these concepts, I think. And it was, it was changing. It just life-changing. I mean, I can't even... I, Outside of salvation, the most powerful two weeks of my life. Mm. And it changed the way I viewed my wife and our marriage. It changed the way I related to my kids. It changed the way I related to leaders in our church, our church. 
I slowly started finding out who I was and living out of my real identity because I think I'd been living with a mask. I mean, I was in my mid thirties at this point. I've been living with a mask since I was about 12 years old and I wasn't sure where the real me began. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a long process of me just kind of uh, learning to offer my own heart. And uh, eventually people saw the change in me. I had an administrative assistant that I had for 10 years. She said, uh, David, I don't know what Potter's School one is, but after seeing how it changed you, sign me up. I want to do it, right? And so then that started happening. Uh, some people would sign up just because they saw the difference it had made in other people's lives. Other people would hear about it and be terrified because there were lots of crying. You know, it's painful. And people are like, yeah, I don't think I'll, I'll pass. But over time, a significant percentage of our own church has gone through this. And there's also a retreat that we do in two days that's kind of Potter's Wheel light that just gives you the basic concepts and lets you have some small group time that's not as intensive. And it lets you kind of get some of these ideas without, you know, getting baptized completely. And for some people, that's a better first taste of it is to have like a whole church or a large number of people in the whole church go through it and get a taste of it. And then some people can go and get more of an intensive, but that's kind of what happened. And so a few years ago, I went through a um, internship with John and Patty, a really intensive internship that when they were telling me about it, I'm looking at them thinking, there's no way I'm going to pay to do this internship. Are you out of your mind? And then they said, and if you do this, we'll let you teach Potter's School One. I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. That's what I want to do the rest <laughs> of my life. So uh, now Hope and I teach Potter's School One and Two. And last year we did six between the two, one and two. We do more Potter's School Ones than twos. But between the two, we did six last year and we're on schedule to do six this year. And our board of directors at Oasis has just been gracious and agreed to let me be bivocational. I don't get any money from that. All the money goes into Oasis. So I'm still getting just the Oasis pay. But they realized that uh, more and more my calling is to the church at large and not just to, to Oasis. And uh, a lot of the people that come through these things are pastors and their wives and other people in ministry. And um, it's just, it's the most fun thing I get to do. And I love doing it. Hmm. Well, David, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, that sounds like a book in the making. If it hasn't already <laughs> been started. So, it hasn't. I would I would, I would buy it. I would read it. So uh, I know a lot of people who are watching and listening probably want to know a little bit more about not just your journey with Oasis, but this ministry called Potter's Wheel and how soul care is what a lot of pastors are called to do. And some, it may be their primary calling. It may be their, their passion. So uh, we'll put a link to uh, your church and to uh, Potter's Wheel information in our show notes so people can find out more about that. And they'll be able to, to reach out and get in touch with you as well. Uh, but I I just want to say personally, thank you for being honest today about sharing your story. And thank you for sharing about a tool that God has used to encourage and and to help you in your journey. Because a lot of people who are probably watching and listening may have been in ministry for a long time. And maybe they're experiencing this frustration or anxiety or fear or anger or whatever may be going on. And they just, they can't figure out how to put their finger on it. And maybe something like this will encourage them to take the next step they need to, to take care of their own souls so that they can help shepherd other souls. So thank you for sharing that today. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are uh, committed to disciple making and uh, you know, that's something obviously that that I'm committed to. And what I realized coming out here out West years ago, learning my model in college, right. um, Was that uh, there has to be, other pieces to this, right? The cell was one piece, you know, community interacting with people of both genders and different ages. But another piece of this is soul care. 
because what I realized is, is I'm trying to disciple somebody and they were sexually abused as a child and we ignore that and the impact that it had. Uh, scripture memory is just not going to cut it. I mean, that's helpful. That's needed. You can't, you can't grow as a disciple without that. But I started realizing in my ministry that um, soul care was critical because until we help people deal with like trauma, uh, and pe- unless we help people, like, you know, this one gal came to me a while back and she um, clearly had issues trusting Jesus. So I'm just, you know, trying to, you know, gather information at one point, um, asking her how she's doing. She's like, my back hurts. I'm like, why does your back hurt? Well, I don't sleep very much. Well, why don't you sleep very much? Well, I wake up a lot at night because the, the baby monitor goes off. Okay, so um, how long has that been going on? Well, my, my kid's four. You have a baby monitor for a four-year-old and you're constantly waking up in the middle of the night. I think you could turn the baby monitor off at this point. And she's like, no, I can't because I'm afraid. What are you afraid of? I'm afraid something happened to my kid. Mm. Has something ever happened to your kid? No. But you have a hard time trusting God with your kid. Yeah. Has God ever let you down with another kid before? And then she started crying. She said, I had a miscarriage years ago and uh, I'm still not over it. And I said, so basically what you learned is uh, Jesus did not protect that child. Therefore, how in the world can I trust him with this child? Is that true? And she goes, that's exactly it. Well, you know, if I just say, well, trust God, you know, I could just say, trust God, read some scripture, memorize some Bible stuff, you know, but how's that going to help this mom who has to walk into with Jesus, a lament of Jesus, where were you? And until she wrestles with God, and hears from God about that miscarriage, she's going to keep that baby monitor on and she's going to keep having back problems and struggles, mm. you know, no matter, she, she knows the right things, right? I, I think that's what I've learned in soul care is people, most of the people in our church know what to do, but they're not doing it. And so we as pastors have to ask, well, why aren't people doing it? Mm. Why are they stuck? And I think that's where I've learned soul care is a really a vital piece of any pastor's arsenal, right? Because if we don't do soul care with people, they're going to be stuck in ways that our sermons can't get them unstuck. That's right. It's also helped my preaching uh, because, you know, like the story of David Bathsheba, I was talking to this with our assistant pastor um, at one point, and uh, he was preaching on that passage, I think. And I was, he, 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 he had the big idea for me, right? That God uh, shows up even in hard times or uh, God brings beautiful things out of uh, evil and pain, something like that. And I said, do you understand what I meant by that big idea? He goes, yeah, yeah. She, uh, she lost her, her kid and her husband. And I went, yeah, what else? You know, what else? And he's like, well, that's it. I went, no, that's not it. What else? What else did she, did she suffer? And uh, he couldn't, I, he couldn't think of anything. I said, well, think about this. Um, she was probably raped and he goes, Oh, well, some of the commentarians actually say that she, by bathing out in the open, egged it on. And I'm like, um, that's misogyny, man. Like, I would not say that from the pulpit. If I were you don't even bring that commentary stuff up. Let alone said, it doesn't you're going to have women who've been raped. Roof. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to have women in, in our church who've been raped and do not, do not yeah. attack or even suggest that anyone ever has attacked Bathsheba. No, she was probably raped because when the when the president when the king tells you to do something, you do it. It's not the, it's not it. like the president. The king yeah. tells you you do it. And and and, and I said and um, and her husband, of course, was murdered. He, he didn't just die; he was murdered. And then it's funny after sharing this with my daughter, she said to me and dad, 
she had to marry her murder, her, her, her husband's murder. And I didn't even think of that. And so I think in soul care, when I read stories, I see different nuances. I realize how it impacts people. You know, I used to say things like honor your mother and father. But then now after soul care, I look out in the audience and I see people who've been like molested by their parents. And I realize I can't just unqualified say that. Uh, God can say that because in Israel, uh, if you molested your kids, you get rocks thrown at you until you stop breathing. And so nobody has to honor you anymore. You're dead. But this is in Israel. And so I'm looking at people who, they're wanting to know with this confused look, how do I honor these people that took advantage of me? So I've realized my preaching is far more nuanced today. I don't say nearly as many black and white things as I used to. I qualify things a lot more because I look out and I see people that are broken and I know how mm-hmm. they're broken and I know how they're probably hearing what I'm saying. So soul care not only changes people, it also changes your preaching. It changes you. It changes the church. That's, that's so good. So encouraging. And, you know, I mean, I, I think as pastors and leaders, so often we can be like uh, Andy's favorite counselor, Bob Newhart, who when the lady comes with a problem, he says, stop it. Stop you know, it. That doesn't work. I show right? that clip during Potter's Wheel 1. Yeah, yeah that doesn't Always work. So, uh, but, but what an encouragement, uh, David, not just because you're my brother, but really <laughs> what an encouragement of, of honesty, transparency, and, and a journey of God shaping you, using you, growing you still. And, uh, and I know, I know it's been an encouragement. We're, like Andy said, we're going to put some links in the show notes, but um, just thank you for sharing your heart. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. And, and David, um, we're going to have to have a follow-up episode because we didn't have enough time to answer that question about Mark yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, about yeah Mark. I don't think so. But embarrassing yeah. stories. Everybody's been he probably, probably has hanging. more embarrassing stories on me, to be honest with you. I think we've got <laughs> our fair share. By the way, just uh, full disclosure, I did share an embarrassing story about you Sunday in my sermon. But anyway. Um, oh, I need to go hear that then. <laughs> it's the fire, the fire. Anyway, so um, I, I shared that one when I, when I preach on James. But I do want to say- And did that. you say an unnamed member of my family or- <laughs> I probably should. Yes. It's just so real when I, when I mention real people. But anyway, I, I do want to say, do what you say? Pop up my picture and say, this guy, <laughs> no, I, did not. I did not show your picture. Pastor David no, no, I did not. Um, but anyway, thank you for sharing. And, and listen, I'm going to say this. And, and I, I would say this with the re, re, camera on or off, but, um, but thank you for being an incredible example of, of a follower of Jesus. Uh, mm-hmm. Someone who loves others and and loves the Lord, and someone who pastors well. So, just want to want to say that, and and I know those watching and listening have been encouraged and equipped to to lead as they make disciples, um, as they are disciples. So, again, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having. Me. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Church Leadership Podcast. Don't forget to share, subscribe, and even review our podcast on your favorite podcast listening app.